Hello and welcome back to the Soundworks Collection podcast. This is Michael Coleman and this week we are featuring almost all of the panels from the fourth annual Mix Magazine Presents Sound for Film and TV. Uh, This is an all-day conference spotlighting the techniques and technologies behind sound for picture from production to playback. If you haven't attended this event, it takes place at Sony Picture Studios at the post-production department all across many different sound uh, stages and rooms and scoring stages. It's a really amazing event, and one of the aspects of this event that I really like is the breakout sessions. These conversations that are curated to just elicit conversation from the community. And the first session from this event is the uh, from the mixed panel series about editing. It's basically about what they're saying is one soundtrack, multiple formats, preparing immersive audio for any size screen. You know, there are big budgets, there's small budgets, big productions and small productions. But no matter the size or scale of the project, the audio team has to create high quality sound for multiple delivery formats, immersive and stereo. So as the demands increase, so do the challenges facing post-production sound artists. So this panel outlines how sound supervisors approach different types of budgets and different types of formats from 5-1 stems to immersive tracks for theatrical, television, and home theater, and even streaming. So the key is that workflows and decision makings need to be flexible and innovative. This panel was moderated by Mark Mangini and features Andrew DiCrostafario, Tony Lamberti, Jay Jennings, David Rowe, and Julian Slater. I hope you enjoy. We're very lucky today to have a former keynote speaker, uh, Mark Mangini, um, uh, moderating. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you, uh, I'm gonna let him introduce the panel. But real quick, for tonight's uh, film, we tried to get Blade Runner but there's not a chance in hell you're going to see a picture on that. Um, I can't even talk about it. I'm in trouble right now. Um, But that's coming out October 6th and everything. And you'll probably see Mark somewhere in nominee lists and everything for that. Uh, So, Mark, please take it away. She's still talking. It's okay. Um, Take it away, my friend. Thank you, Tom. All right. Um, uh, Who here went to the... Uh, to Tom Holkenborg's uh, keynote address. Great, wasn't he fantastic? Um, you know, I-, I love Tom. One of the things I love most about him is he, like I, really believe in this idea of giving back and the fact that we all live in a sound community. Um, I, I met, Many of you don't know this thing we talk about ad nauseum called the Bake Off, but in the old days, the Academy used to Um, have this process whereby we judge each other's work in the Academy Theater and we'd run these 10-minute clips. And the best part of that was not only to see everybody else's work, but the opportunity it brought to bring friends and collaborators and even competitors together in the same room so we could do stuff like this. So um, I'm really grateful, Tommy McCarthy and Tom Kenny, uh, that you're putting this on. This is kind of what the Bake Off used to be, but even better. It's kind of the Bake Off on steroids. Um, it, this, um, I think it's because I'm Italian I, I, and I come from a big family that this idea of community, this idea of family is really important to me, and this idea of giving back is really important. So really take what Tom says to heart. Um, share, share your information. Be part of a, feel like you're a part of a community. You've done it here by coming to listen to all of us. So um, here we are. We're going to talk about immersive sound. Um, who, is everybody here here for an immersive sound panel? Right? Anybody not? Anybody here for the John Deere exhibit or the 
I just want to make, you can leave now if you don't want to hear us all geek out. <laughs> Thank you, Drew. There you go. Uh, that's, that's typical for Drew. <laughs> just want to make sure you're locked in. Look, the doors are closed. Um, uh, and Tony, I mean, Tommy, thank you again to Sony. I know we, we say this ad nauseum, but it, it's just great that we can do this. Um, my name is Mark Mangini, and we're going to talk about immersive sound in ways that are, are valuable to me. If, if I'm hoping we don't geek out on gear, um, you have this an amazing panel here of sound storytellers, of, of auteurs, if you will, people who know how to tell stories with sound, and that's what I want to elicit from them. Are, are there stories, how they use sound to tell stories immersively? Um, so I guess I'll introduce the gang. We're gonna, I'll, I have a series of questions and then there'll be some Q&A at the end. So save your, your questions for that. Um, our first panelist is and to my left. Sorry, I hate making you go first. Uh, is best known for the films Scott Pilgrim, Baby Driver, the soon-to-be-released Jumanji. You're, you're in the middle of it, right? Yeah, I, I was in here late last night. Yeah, uh, in this, you're mixing in this room. Yeah, yeah we're doing, a, we're doing a, a, a temp in the middle of finaling. So. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but, but I know him from collaborating with him on Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, Julian was an indispensable creative voice and sound designer for Mad Max. So please give it up for sound supervisor, sound designer, and mixer, Julian Slater. Thank you. Uh, down in the end of the, the chain, a two-time two Emmy Award winner for and starring Pancho Villa as himself and John Adams. He's also an Academy Award nominee for Inglorious Bastards. His career spans over 150 feature films, including Django Unchained, Shrek, Mission Impossible 2, and The Twilight Saga. Please welcome re-recording mixer, as well as sound editor, no? Tony Lamberti. Correct. Hi, everybody. How are you doing? Tony, do you use sound designer? Is that ever part of your, your Yeah, that's, that's primarily what I do in terms okay. of if I'm out of the mixing chair, I'll jump into the design chair. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah I know yeah. you're ambidextrous that way. That's Correct. Re that's really important. Kind I try the, at least. I try. <laughs> kind of the wave of the future. Um, our next panelist received an Oscar nomination for Best Sound Editing in 2014 for Unbroken, together with colleague Becky Sullivan. He's also known for work on The Heat, Iron Man 3, Spy, uh, the recent remake of the Ghostbusters film, and the Netflix series The OA. Um, he has enjoyed working on independent films such as Crazy Heart and Little Miss Sunshine and award-winning documentaries. Please welcome Supervising Sound Editor Andrew DeCristofaro. Thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> Thank you. We, we call him Drew, and you're encouraged to do so as well. Um, our next panelist... <clears throat> Credits include five of the Tony Hawk pro skating titles, six of the Guitar Hero titles, and two Call of Duty titles, including the TEC award-winning Call of Duty Ghosts and 2016's Call of Duty Infinite Warfare. Please welcome Infinity Ward's lead sound designer, Dave Rowe. Thank you. And 
And finally, but not finally, uh, he has worked on over 60 feature films, including Transformers 5, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Kung Fu Panda 3, and Road to Perdition. He's won three MPSE awards and two Emmys. He's currently working on the upcoming films Meg, coming in 2018, and Godzilla, King of the Monsters in 2019. Please welcome supervising sound designer, Jay Jennings. Thank you. Good morning. As you can see, a very, very gifted and knowledgeable panel. I, I hope we can mine that uh, knowledge base. Um, tell me something. You are all master storytellers. What, what's the deal with immersive sound? Why is, this is an open question to all of you. It's sort of a buzzword. It's, it's on the lips of everyone in the post community. Why is immersive sound a thing? There is no wrong answer. Oh, and by the way, I know it says immersive up there, and it's on the publicity. You don't have to be kind, and you don't have, to, and you don't have to be an advocate. What is immersive? I can lead off, I guess. Um, I see sound as all sound as being immersive, whether you're in a theater or whether you're in nature, uh, whether you're just in real life. If you just close your eyes, you're immersed in in whatever environment you're in. Um, and that's something that I remember every time I go to work is to listen, to always be listening and to work that into my storytelling, whatever film or project I'm, I'm working on. Uh, immersive sound today is, seems to be mostly about uh, virtual reality. That's a big, a big platform for that. Um, but my, uh, my focus really is on feature film, and so we're working in different environments, whether it's 5.1, 7.1, Atmos. Uh, and so I think about immersive sound in that way. But really, it's for me, it's all about storytelling. Immersive sound is all about how do you tell the story, regardless of your platform, whether you're in a theater or you're listening on a, on a mono iPhone speaker. Thank you, Jay. That's good. About the story. Anyone else? Uh, yeah, I'll pick up on that. Um, how many in this room work daily in either a 7.1 or Atmos uh, format? Just a few of you. <clears throat> you know, if you think about it, 5.1 was the original immersive format. And it's been around for a long, long time. And it's tried and tested. And you know, people love it. So you know, sound has been a part of that for a long, long time. And now that we're able to have more speakers and more ability to pan things around the room, doesn't necessarily mean that it's that much better. It's, it's about what you do with that. And so um, you know, if you think in those terms, I think that uh, you know, you use it like Jay was saying, use it to tell the story as opposed to using it for some kind of gimmick. Then you're going to serve yourself, you know, much much better. I want, I want to follow up on that too. I think, <clears throat> I mean, as far as filmmaking has been going on, it was always about transporting an audience to another location when it started in its earliest conception. I mean, people saw locations they never would get to see and things. So even that's that's before there was even sound being married to the picture, and I think even when it's when we got sound and it was mono, I think we were still in a sense in a, an immersion, trying to bring you to a place or a location. Um, and the tools have obviously gotten better over the years. To now we have Atmos. I see my Dolby friends back there. Hello, Jim. <laughs> Hi, Doug. Hi, Jim. Hi, hey, Doug. Um, but it, it, it's just more tools for us to enable to put the audience in these you know, exotic locations, remote locations, being isolated. They're tools to convey emotion. 
Um, and what all of us here really try to do, it took me, I, I probably was eight years into getting the craft of sound, putting sound to film where I realized, okay, I'm beyond the, <laughs> I have to stick a door where a door is and saying, what is that door supposed to tell me emotionally? So having immersive sound, I think for, for me, and I think for all of us, is conveying, you know, it's a tool to convey emotion of what's going on on the screen for the audience. Thank you, Drew. Yeah, I, 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 you know, just to echo everyone else, I mean, immersive can be whatever you want it to be. You can watch a movie on your iPhone if you so choose to and put on a pair of headphones and it's immersive, right? Um, We're going to get to that. Okay. <laughs> um, we'll see. You know, I, I, I've only just recently completed my first native Atmos mix and, uh, and I, it, it was, a, it was a, a very interesting process. And of course, at the last stage, which is the mix stage, you, you decide where everything's going to go. But I, I, again, I think immersive starts way earlier than that in, in whatever format you're working in. It, it, it immersive is, as Drew says, the, the easy part of our jobs is the putting a door close on the door close or the dog bark where the dog barks. It's, it's trying to come at it from an angle to try and help the director paint uh, a story and, and evolve the, 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 the cinematic experience in my uh, case. Uh, and it's whatever you can do to kind of push that forward. And, 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 I, and I love working uh, in immersive with all the speakers, but that's just the last point. It's, it's everything kind of before that as well that, that for me is the, is the challenge and what I, what I love doing. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to echo that uh, it can be whatever you want it to be. You know, um, I work more interactively uh, in, a, in a game environment. So um, what we're trying to do Arguably is, more immersive. Uh, I, mean, uh, I mean, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what we're trying to do is try to put that player, uh, you know, superimpose themselves onto whatever is on the screen in that environment. Um, Call of Duty is a first-person shooter, so you are in a 3D world with everything around you, so you have to build that 3D world audibly and then also make it interact uh, audibly the way that you would expect, you know, maybe a film to interact audibly. So immersive for us is more about uh, getting the player into the position of the character on screen. Thank you, David. Uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna really throw a bomb in the middle of this for a second and then we'll get back to the serious matter of why immersive sound is good. Um, if you were given a choice, a, a, a black and white choice, this applies less to you, David, but see if you can interpolate it to your situation. Most of you guys are working in feature films. If, uh, if your producer said to you, you have a choice, you can mix for five weeks in 5.1, or you can mix for four weeks and do an Atmos up mix at the end of it, which would you choose? The first one, easily. Tell me why. Well, because I've been involved in a couple of the Atmos up, up mixes or what we sometimes call aftermost. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I coined that phrase, but somebody did, and it kind of stuck. But uh, I find the, the uh, post-final upmix to be not very rewarding because many of the key players are not there anymore. The director is usually not there. He might pop in. Uh, the picture editor might not be there. It's kind of like just the sound crew and... and you have to be careful, too, that you don't break the soundtrack that you've just spent four weeks mixing by moving something you know, into the ceiling. And that's a creative choice that uh, all the creative players should be there helping to make. 
So I would definitely take uh, door number one. That's great. Um, David, I'll get you in one second. Let me recontextualize it a bit because I want it to be come from a slightly different point of view. What if you had a choice between a native Atmos mix for four weeks or a 5-1 mix for five weeks? That's what you were given. Would you choose the mixing time? Which would you choose? Yeah. This is just to everyone. I think it depends on what kind of movie you're mixing. I mean, if you're mixing something that really would take advantage of the of using the Atmos, which some movies are really lend themselves to mm. that, and others don't. So yeah. it just it it really depends on the type of movie yeah. you're mixing. You know, um, I mixed two native shows this year, both of them which really benefited by going, you know, natively. Um, but you know, you realize at the end of the day that most people are going to view it in five one. You know, right. um, so that, that's the heart of this question, is yeah. it? Mm -hmm. And so, who's really, going to most benefit? Yeah, you have to. I think now that the where Dolby has gotten the the um, re-renders and all that stuff, not not to get too technical, but where that where it's gone to in terms of the down mixing, um, you really end up with a five one product if you mix natively that is very true to your native mix. So right. you can mix natively and end up with a 5-1 mix that you can be happy with. Um, but, but again, it's a, what, how many theaters is it going out in? How, who is going to consume it in what format the most? That's what you really got to be thinking about. So you're really making a project by project decision. There's yes. no project simple answer project, to that question. Sure. I was just going to say I would take uh, option three, which is uh, <laughs> at most native. Uh, the whole way through, you know, we work with audio objects all the time. Everything is basically tied to objects within this, the scene. Um, so that really gives us, uh, you know, it gets down mix in real time to a 5.1. We get to hear the 5.1, mm -hmm. uh, but we can also hear the Atmos. You know, if we need it, to. And these, the new consoles can output up to Atmos uh, yeah, rendering? Yeah, yeah there, there are a few And the game engine is doing Atmos. all that new, all that panning and reverberance, Yeah, you, you assign, you know, not to get too technical, but you assign uh, sounds to audio objects just like you do in a normal Atmos. Cool. I, I yeah. guess it is per project basis, but I, my answer is actually different to yours. Jay, I, I, um, I love Atmos and, and I spent many weeks in London doing Baby Driver natively in Atmos. <clears throat> but I actually struggled with making the 5-1 at the back end, it, it, kind of emotionally as well. Like having, having, having spent weeks and weeks doing what I, what I believe is a glorious mix in Atmos and then having you know, like four days to do the 5-1. <clears throat> and just emotionally, it just I left the project on 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 a, a format that is a, a, a not not as as uh, gloriously uh, immersive uh, and with the dynamic range as well that we were playing with. Sure. Um, but knowing that the majority of people in the cinema will be seeing it in five one, but I, I was actually, I found it very hard to go from fully immersive and and things, you know, rocking on the back speakers to then just. Going down to this, we didn't even do seven one. It was a five one. So I, I, I struggled. I actually really struggled going from so many speakers down to five. And do you think it changed the storytelling? I mean, when you lose some of that low frequency in the surrounds, maybe the, the music cues that are really driving yeah. a scene maybe don't have the impact they used to have. I, something like that. I, I do. I know that people who've seen it in five one and listened to it in five one in, uh, didn't necessarily feel that. But you know, there were there were times in the movie where we're trying to play things from um, 
the lead character's perspective. And so we were doing a lot of things. There's a whole, there's like a, a, um, a seven to six minute opening sequence where he's walking down the street and everything was panned to how he heard it and down the, you know, the left speakers, right speakers, all around, up and above. And then to go to 5-1, of course, you're losing a, a, a large amount of information. When the day comes that 50% of the audience are going to experience it in Atmos, then absolutely I'll have no issue in, in leading with Atmos and then doing it. But of course, at the moment, and I don't know what the numbers are, but it's, and I know it's increasing, but it's still the majority is 5-1. So, so, yeah, that, I just struggle kind of emotionally with that, leaving, ah. leaving the movie in not so glorious 5-1, having heard it for weeks in glorious Atmos. It's like the days of going from 5-1 to 2-track. It's completely unsatisfying. That was hard. Completely unsatisfying. <laughs> yeah. well, can I bring up an option D real quick? Oh, one second. I want to get to Drew. I see Go. Drew look, looking like well, he Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, the question of time versus, I mean, it, it's so dependent on the, on the, on the project. I mean, because you almost need the time <laughs> for the projects that would really, really benefit from the Atmos experience. You, you almost need as much mix time as you can too to get all the elements blended in correctly. So it's kind of, it, it is very much dependent on, on in each project. Um, and interestingly enough too is, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about formats and it's, it's, it's really disappointing I think that we, you know, we work in this seven, you know, this Atmos, I mean even seven one I think sounds, you, you can notice the difference between a seven one mix and a five one mix. And, um, you know, so Dolby, when are we going to get in more theaters out there? That's my question to Dolby. 2,734. That's great. <laughs> See, that's great. And I mean, that's what we, that's, I mean, because I think it's really important because one of the things about formats, I think what's really important about almost why Atmos, I, I don't know exactly, but is to get people back in a theater and to totally. have this totally. experience right. versus watching Absolutely. it on a little screen right. like this. There is nothing that compares to this experience. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think we need to do everything we can to still make this a worthwhile experience for audiences because it, you're not gonna reproduce this at home. I mean, the average viewer, even without most and stuff. I mean, God knows I'm trying as far as the wife will let me, but <laughs> it's, it's not the same. Uh, Drew, you, it's as if you read my mind. It leads uh, into my very next question. Thank you very much. Uh, Jay, I will get back to you. I know there's a third option. We'll, we'll get back to that in a second. So Julian, um, I, this is, I think this is a really interesting thing to talk about. Um, uh, when you and I, when you wrote to me about what, what's valuable to you about immersive sound, um, you talked about this idea of, of, of going to the movies being social and this communal experience idea um, and its cultural value. Um, and, and you talked about this idea of it's getting people away from thinking about their phones and stuck to their devices. Um, is, is immersive sound doing this? Uh, is immersive sound getting people out of their homes? Is it, and is it, is it putting butts in seats? I hope, I hope so. It, it should be. Uh, and, and I guess as the more theaters that have immersive, the, the, the hopefully the, the numbers will follow. Yeah, I, I, I'm quite old fashioned with that regard. I, I, I'm struck even today, I'm a iPhone Oh, I, I cannot stop, you know, if I have a moment away from the mixing desk or the Pro Tools, I'm looking at my iPhone of you know, nothing. It's just it's it's ridiculous. Addiction. It is an addiction. You know, and I see it in my two boys. They're, they're, you know, we have to moderate them. And, but when you go to the cinema, I, it's, the only, it's the only one of the only things that I can think of where a group of 
young and old people focus on an art form for you know 90 minutes or two hours solidly focus on something without the distractions even to this day and occasionally there'll be someone on their iphone or very rarely you know most people are pretty good and they they, they turn off their iphone and they concentrate and in in uh, in my past life in the uk i, I used to I was split between doing TV projects and, and movie projects, and, and I used to love doing the movie projects more for me because I knew that if it was going out on TV, if it's anything like my house, it's you could have a TV in the kitchen whilst you know the wife is chopping the carrots, or it's there's always stuff going on, you know, and so you're, you've got to fight for that attention. Whereas in the in the in the in the cinema, it really is just a darkened room and everyone's focused on on, on what you're doing, and and if it's played back correct, correctly, everything that you know, one does in a room like this, it gets reproduced as as you intend it to, by and large. And that's it's anything that um, I'm, I'm t I think I read that the 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 you know obviously we've had a bad year this year for box office. Uh, um, uh, Blade Runner is going to change that. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. <laughs> um, and I just think any anything that w that we can all do that that um, that. Uh, uh, saves as many people going to uh, the cinema as possible is a good thing. I know there's talk of, you know, you pay 50 bucks for to watch uh, um, a, a movie at home the week it comes out, but I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm just a purist. I think it's great. I think it's great that I can take my two boys and go and watch a movie and they concentrate for two hours and, and watch an art form, which is, I think, can only be encouraged. I, I, I've written about this, and I feel very strongly that this, this desire to gather in dark spaces around a flickering light is something that's very evolutionary. It's, I think it's truly embedded in our DNA. We have 100,000 years of telling each other stories. So I, I had this idea that there was probably a really clever caveman who was telling his you know, farmer joke around the fire, but he decided to like immersively put his buddies like behind the audience, you know, all the people gathered around the fire. There's like the surround speakers. He had other cavemen making sound effects and music as he's telling his story around the campfire. Dol Dolby senior, 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 That's it. That's senior, it. senior. That was Dolby Z, 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 Z. That's what it was. Um, okay, thank you, Julian. Um, Tony. You've had a very amazing career as a sound editor as well as a re-recording mixer. And uh, I think that gives you a pretty unique um, perspective on preparation for an immersive mix. Uh, yeah. I think you're the sort of the, the senior re-recording mixer here on the team. Uh, can you give any advice to sound designers in the room on smart preparation for immersive mixing for feature film? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, from my perspective, um, one of the biggest things in terms of you know kicking off any kind of immersive project from the very beginning is to you know, communicate with all the players involved. Um, from the people that you work with on the crew, there's uh, somebody I just did one with, uh, we did Spider-Man uh, Homecoming together, Eric Norris, who was a uh, supervising sound editor and sound designer. Um, He's sitting and, right over there, raise your hand, Eric. Yeah, raise your hand, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> one of the greats. Um, so, you know, in, from the post-production people, the post-production supervisor here at the studio, the people in the sound department, the filmmakers all along the, the chain of command in terms of, you know, what, how do we want to kick this thing off? What do we want it? What's the expectations? Um, you know, how can we set this thing up for success all the way along? 
the line. And so, you know, what Eric and I did from the very beginning was we laid out the, the framework for the show. We watched the show. We talked about what kind of elements were going to be in there in terms of sound design. We um, laid out a, a, a uh, basically a food group layout of, you know, this is going to be where all the, you know, uh, hard effects are. This is where all the Spider-Man webs are going to be. This is where all the Spider-Man shooters are going to be. This is where the, the the sounds for the vulture, the bat, the main bad guy, are going to be, and that we carried that from the inception of the very first sound that was ever pulled or cut or whatever, all the way through the final mix, and you know that paid out, paid huge dividends because then we could have people come on and off the crew. We just gave them the layout. Here's the lay of the land. It was very easy for us to, you know, do temp dubs, um, conform up. You know, the the show was being it was so massively behind in terms of visual effects that we were able to keep everything organized, even though the sessions were going on and off the stage constantly to get new sounds put in for new VFX. So, um, you know, it, it starts from the very, very beginning and communicating that to every single person. This is what we're doing. This is how we're laying it out um, and letting people weigh in. If people have thoughts about it, you know, oh, what about this? What about that? And, and we change things, you know, a couple times along the way, like, oh, we need to have a little bit more real estate so that when these you know, visuals come in, we have a place to put them that will be unencumbered by anything else. Um, and so, you know, again, I can't stress enough how, you know, if, when you do that from the very, very beginning, especially a native Atmos show, because then we knew we were gonna be going from uh, essentially what was 5.1 and 7.1 start, starting point to then blowing it out to full Atmos for the final. Um, it was very easy for us to do that. And, um, and, you know, again, it, it uh, made the whole process go really, really smooth, even when it got really crazy. Would you agree, Eric? Yeah, thumbs up from Eric. So, um, hey, Tony, I'm, I'm curious if you're um, recording linear pre-dubs. Are you staying virtual, some blend of the two? What, yeah, what's your no, technique? We, for for Spider-Man Homecoming, we were 100% virtual the entire time. So the only thing we ever printed was the final... Uh, Atmos renders onto the recorder at the very end, which would have been our bed stems, our object um, uh, automation, and all that stuff. So that was, which was handled by Jeremy um, Davis, who was our mix tech. Um, and I mixed the show with Kevin O'Connell, who's you know uh, senior re-recording mixer here, and um, and it was it was a great experience. It turned out great. So, Thanks. Yeah. Julian, did you have a comment? Well, I, only I, I just listening to you talk. Uh, and everything you're absolutely spot on. It's all about the organisation. I, I, but I remember, just to show how human we all are, I, I, I was really worried about going to Atmos because you, it sounds so complicated. And you, I've seen track lays before where there's so many tracks, and it's like, oh my god, how am I going to do it? And then uh, I, I went to spend a day at Dolby and uh, 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 with Brian and uh, Pennington. To, yeah, to ask him, you know, try and learn all about. Um, uh, Atmos and it still sounded extremely complicated. And at the end of the end of the day, he kind of said, "He said, is it all clicked into place?" And I said, "Well, you know, it's a lot of theory here, and and uh, I, I'm not too good with theory. I'm more with kind of you know the practical side." He said, "Well, he said if it helps, I, I had a day with Andy Nelson, uh, and he had the same look uh, as you do." And then he said, uh, "He said, oh, so you're basically just telling me I've got more speakers to pan into." I said, yes. He said, well, that's that then. That's easy. Uh, and, and it... And it, it, it We're uh, done. Thank you. Good night. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, just to say, it sounds so... speakers dependent. Yeah, it, it does sound so... It sounds quite... I, I was daunted, and it sounds quite...
quite complicated, but it's not. It's not. It's the. It's the housekeeping, right, Tony? It's the. It's yeah. the. It's the making sure, and, and when you're working virtually, even more so, when you're relying on plugins and Pro Tools to keep playing back those plugins and DSP management and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. the the Atmos side of it, I found quite easy. It was yes. the, it's the it's the it's the maintaining the tracks and that the, is that is true because when you get into the really super high track counts, then keeping track of all that automation and making sure that the crew members you have who are we're going to be responsible for editing that automation understand exactly what's going on and you're not too unencumbered by too many plugins too much you know julian's right you can you can get bogged down in that stuff very easily so you just got to think it out and make sure that you don't allow yourself to get to get caught by those gremlins thanks uh dave let's shift gears a little bit um right. you're our uh, game representative and I, I really want to get to that because it's an arena i know very little about um in the Call of Duty game, um, you, you talked about making the player feel powerful and in control, situationally aware of their surroundings. Tell us more about how you do that as a sound designer, and how do you do that in an immersive environment in a game? Well, what immersive environments are available to us in gaming on, on modern consoles? Well, um, the immersive environment, I, like I said, putting the player uh, putting the actual player who's at the controls into the game at the location of your character on screen is vitally important to immersion. Um, you know, we do a lot of work, um, you know, getting 3D elements into the game, panning with uh, the actual screen, getting them spread out and collapse and, uh, you know, distances and everything interactively. So, um, you know, that's a Im super important part. Um, uh, you know, uh, the other thing would be like uh, making sure that the, the player feels powerful, that they are affecting that world. Um, you know, if, if they're just passively watching it and it's happening on screen, they aren't really immersed in the actual game, uh, the gameplay of, of what they're doing. So whatever they're doing on screen, you have to uh, hype up um, their their abilities basically you know give them somewhat superpowers audibly uh, you know um, so uh, that's that's in and that can go for any game if it's uh, Call of Duty where you're shooting machine guns or whether it's you know sitting on your iPhone with uh, Candy Crush you know those those little nice musical tones you know those those get you immersed into the game you get into a flow uh, you know and that's what we're trying to do uh, is try to rope the user in. I'm curious uh, because there's there's this sort of unspoken um, uh, preference in in theatrical narrative filmmaking where uh, putting sounds in the surrounds is somewhat distracting. You you tend generally not to put dialogue in the surrounds. These are good rules to abide by until yep. you don't need to. Yep. I'm imagining that the, in in games you can play by slightly different rules. We, do yeah, would those go out the window? We break all those rules. <laughs> Yes. So, yeah. what so situational awareness is, is important. You know, uh, is you're that an industry what, term? Situation? No, that's it's kind of a military. military it's kind of a military term. So it is. It is Call of Duty, uh, by the way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So you know, knowing where your where your enemies are, knowing where your friendlies are, um, you know, that's incredibly important to, to navigate the space. So perhaps immersive sound might even be more vital in gaming than it is in in theatrical uh, exhibition. I would argue so. Yeah, because you're you're always using. Oral cues to inform the player, the audience. Completely, right. And tacking onto that, I was thinking, you know, this 
I think you're right. In the gaming situation, you're, you're, it, well, it's different. It's just different. I mean, yeah. our job, and it's hard to quantify when you say sound and what we're doing with sound, but a, a lot of times I, I hear or see the sound visually. I don't know how many other people work that way here. But so, you know, our job as supervising sound editors, I always say we're akin to the director of photography. And by that, I mean, you know, when we put a sound on the screen, it's, it's really easy to cover. I mean, talk about Mad Max. I mean, it'd been really easy to cover every single sound on that film and it would have sounded like crap. But the idea is, is to use sound like in terms of, you know, cinematography as depth of field. So I want to be focused on this element here, but I need to feel like I'm seeing all these other things that are blurred around me. So my brain tells me I'm hearing everything, but I need to direct the audience where I need them to be tracking and what's important. So that's part, that's really part of the art. And I mean, Tony knows, I mean, a lot of times it's not making sure we have enough sound. It's going through on the mix and weeding out the stuff we don't need, like yeah. what's important at this time. And I'm, I'm assuming it's got to be the same in the video game yeah, it's, it's, thing as well, because you can have everything playing. But so that's really the art. And that's, you know, that's that's where to me it was more. It, it's still about conveying emotion and sense of place. And so to me, that's part of the immersion. So when you see a beautiful shot of like a bottle of wine on a table, how do you know what that, what's where you are and what it is? But the bottle's the only thing in focus, but you can see the forks and the plates in the background. They're blurred, but your brain puts that all together and you know what you're, but you're focused on an object. Same kind of thing sonically. George Miller said to me once, Mad Max is a film we see with our ears the um, frame was so dense visually that it was really sound often that told you where to look and told you what was important to, what important information to gather. May I ask you a question? So, so uh, George, as we know, is a very sound aware director. And, and of course, the work that, that flourishes from that is self-evident. How, how, as a percentage, how many directors do you find are as sound aware as someone like George? Well, you know, you won't meet a director who doesn't say to you upon your first meeting, sound is really important to me. <laughs> well, I suppose you said to the cinematographer, these images are really important to me too. Like, let's make sure to get them on film. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty self-serving statement. Um, where George differentiates is this, um, is this approach whereby he's always telling story with sound. So for example, when we spotted Mad Max in Sydney, George didn't micromanage. George didn't tell me, make sure to have a tire skid there and a, a weird sound here. What he did talk about was what the characters were thinking and feeling. And he led me in a direction as he would an actor in a rehearsal so that you knew what the character arc of the sound was. And from there, and that shows consummate respect for professionals because it allows me to bring myself to the movie and bring my ideas. Okay, now that I know what Furiosa feels in this scene, how does sound tell that story? And that's where George differentiates himself from everyone else. Those, I, tacking on again, that, that the, the best notes I've ever gotten from filmmakers have been, they give me an emotional roadmap of what the character wants to feel. And they don't, they don't micromanage him, but they'll say, you know, on Unbroken, it was like Angie was like, I want him to feel this here. I want Louis to feel this here. I want him to feel that. And they were like, okay, got it. So then 
How do we implement that? That's our job. I'm imagining on Unbroken that uh, Angie, as you call her, um, would would be being an actress uh, would be the consummate uh, sort of uh, story arc advocate that because she, she comes from that acting place. Absolutely. I mean, and I find that the case. And I call her Angie. Is that? I, it's fine with me. <laughs> we all do. We all do. And it's probably fine with Brad now too. I don't know, but uh, too soon. <laughs> Um, no, she was a sweetheart. Um, and I think everybody called her Angie. It wasn't just me. Um, she, uh, she was very concerned about performance, and, uh, as, uh, as should be. Um, and in fact, so there's a long sequence in the ocean. Eric worked on that with us. Eric knows all about this. Very long sequence. And her, her emotional roadmap at that was pure isolation. I want the desolation, the isolation. So when they shot that, they decided, they tried to do it in the ocean and it was too difficult. So they built a tank next to a freeway, next to an amusement park. <laughs> Not a good idea. <laughs> so try as best we could. So we did it. I mean, she was adamant that we were never going to loop it. And we were like, we're going to have to loop it. We're going to have to loop it. So we did it both ways. And ultimately, um, and this was even impressive. I mean, at this point, we've been doing this for a really long time. How frequencies in the Sonicscape affect you as a human and emotionally. So uh, John Taylor was our re-recording mixer on the dialogue side, did an amazing job, cleaned it as best as could be done without affecting the quality of the voice. And honestly, it would have been passable as far as a from a technical standpoint. But Becky Sullivan, who had worked for literally months to get the same performances, put the actors in a dark stage and pillows on their back in the boat and we wouldn't let them drink water so their lips would get crispy and then more lip smacks. We had a library of lip smacks. Method ADR. It was, Fantastic. it was, and to get them back in that space and to be that. So we played a scene for Angie both ways with, we had mixed everything, the Bee Gees, the music and everything. And we played it for her with the production and the ADR and her reaction after hearing the ADR was, holy shit, she goes, we got to do the rest of it. Like we had already recorded it that way. But it literally, with those other frequencies that were there that shouldn't have been there, you were watching these actors on a raft to when they were removed, you were there with them like this. It literally put you that much closer. And it was, to, we don't usually get to A-B it, an entire scene that way. And as all of us as sound professionals, to have the ability and the time to do that was it exposed, you know, really how important, you know, all that detail is and what we do and how that really changed the uh, experience for all of us. For, I, I would argue that that's every bit immersive as putting things in the 100%. surround because you, you've immersed the audience in an experience emotionally and exactly. we should be striving for that. Which no? is exactly, uh, well, exactly right. My initial note is we try to transport you to a place, you know, in time and emotion and sense. And that, that's, that's to me has been immersive sound. When I started, we still were in um, using the matrix, the Dolby, you know, it was SR, A and SR when I was, when I was really getting into it. So we still had mono surround, but we had, we were always thinking in surround, you know, I mean, as long as I've been doing this, I've never really done a mono film. I think I did a documentary once that may have been mono. But other than that, I've always been working and I think sound has always been working in 3D, you know, is our space. Um, you know, and in terms of frequencies, what we do, you know, when you talk to a composer, I mean, the composer picks instruments, you know, low tones, high tones. 
to convey emotion, and we do the same thing. I mean, we are scoring the film with sound um, uh, because they affect you. And knowing what tones and what things, I mean, I've had great notes from directors say, I just need a sound that pushes this character away from that one or something that brings them together. Those are directors that understand the power. They're not saying, I need this or that. They, they're trying to tell a story with sound, and it's, you know, that's all part of the immersion. Um, Jay, uh, you do, y you've been extraordinarily successful as a sound designer, uh, which is to say at least one aspect of sound design, which is the creation of sounds um, that no one's ever heard before. You probably spend lots of time in your studio making stuff up. Talk a little bit about what uh, Drew was just touching on, this idea of making sounds that have some kind of emotional resonance. Can, can you give us an idea of maybe how you approach that or what some of your successes may have been, or what your guiding philosophies are there? Sure. Well, there's so much to discuss, really, right there. Um, and I, that, when I said, can I get an option D you know, earlier in the discussion, uh, I wanted to touch upon the idea that immersive sound uh, doesn't have to be restricted to the, the mixing stage. Uh, we should be thinking about immersive sound when we read the script. Uh, before we even pull the first sound from the library or go out with the microphone, we should be thinking about how do we immerse the audience in this story um, just from the, very, from the very beginning. So when I was thinking about would you take five weeks of five one time or four weeks, you know, so-so, I would take, how much sound design time can I get up front? Because that's, the, that's where my creation is happening. Right. For me, the mixing stage is like the finishing touches on a product that is already very well crafted. Uh, and if you don't have the time to craft it early, then you're gonna get to the stage with stuff that just isn't very convincing or very emotionally attached to the product that you're, the, the project that you're working on. So I'll take as much sound design time up front as I can get, uh, and time to sit with it. You, you need time to, to live with these sounds, to You watch. and the director. I and think that's, director that's such too. an important component of it. Absolutely, yeah. All the collaborators, the picture editor, the director, the composer, if you're lucky enough to get on board, you, that's kind of rare. Uh, it's it's rare when you get to collaborate with your composer before you actually hit the final. It, did, it didn't used to be that way, which is a bummer. <laughs> yeah, it's very compartmentalized now. But um, getting back into the design suite, um, the, and not to geek out too much on the, the gear, but the latest version of Pro Tools now comes with, uh, I've just played around with it a little bit, so I might be wrong on some of the technicalities, but it does come with an embedded uh, Atmos panner. So, if you've got the speakers in your room, which a lot of people might not have ceiling speakers in your room, but even if you just have the panner, you can think through the arc of the design that you're, that you're doing there and kind of transport yourself into Atmos land, thinking about, well, I want this plane to fly over my head, not just from the front speakers to the back speakers, but I want it to, to fly over and I want that helicopter to sit right up there. So I can be doing Atmos immersive sound design you know, in week one of my film. So when we get to the temp stage or we get to the pre-dubs, um, everything's popping up in the right places right away. So you can take these, these ideas, uh, is that me? You can take panning ideas and three-dimensional ideas early on and do it in your design room so that when you get to the stage, 
you can just put the faders up to zero and say, okay, we're 90% there. Hey, Tony, um, talk a little bit about that, that collaboration that is happening in the way that Jay's talking where sound designers are doing a lot of that prep work in a design room and then they bring it to you for that polish, that finishing touch or, and or hopefully some, maybe some big broad stroke ideas. Um, translation thoughts, uh, plug-in thoughts, uh, how's that yeah. working out for you? Well, it, it, it goes pretty smooth, actually, uh, smoother than you would think. Um, you know, it's uh, out of all the projects I've done this year, every single one of them has been quite different in terms of where I jump in in the process. Sometimes I'll come in, um, like in the in the case of uh, Power Rangers, it was at the beginning of the year, which was a native Atmos mix. I came in like the third or fourth temp. So I hadn't seen any of the movie, came in on the third or fourth temp, and then the next thing I know, we're hitting the pre-dub stage. I didn't have anything to do with setting up the layouts or any of that stuff, so I had to dive into that and kind of understand that very quickly right away. Um, uh, you know, uh, in the case of Spider-Man, you know, I was there from the inception, so that you know that was a whole different kind of you know use case in terms of you know how to lay it all out. Um, and, and I find, and I just did a temp dub um, with some folks who uh, who I know, have known for a long, long time. Um, one of which the designers is in the room right now, and the stuff came, it was really, really close. So they're doing a lot of leveling, a lot of pre-panning of certain things, um, and kind of getting you to a point where if you have to do a real quick temp dub, you're not fighting the faders and levels are all over the place and things are popping out. And um, so there's a lot of power in that, and we were able to do essentially a giant action movie in about four day, four and a half days. Peter, that's and, uh, not what he said behind your back. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it was really well prepared. It was really well prepared. So you find all different, kind, you find all different kinds of, of um, things, you know, but um, for the most part, you know, the people that I've been fortunate enough to work with understand that and can get it pretty close quickly. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of members of this audience who are designing in a 5-1 in a room or a 7-1 room or a 7-1-2 room. What, what are you seeing as the biggest pitfalls, if any, in terms of translation from small room to big room, what, what do you find yourself redoing the most often, if anything? It's, it's mostly level. It's, it's not, you know, there is some panning things that need to be checked and or fixed. Um, a lot of times I find that, that people pan things too fast. Um, you know, there will be a car that's moving off screen and the sound has already gone over there when the car's still over there, those mm -hmm. kinds of things. Um, but mostly it's levels. It's, it's you know, they're... Their stuff's coming out hot, so I need to bring it back a little bit and to kind of get it to where it needs to be. And it's it's not a lot, but it's it's enough to you go, okay, this is not really where it needs to be in the pocket. Pull it back a little bit, and then you're good. I think it depends on how well the room is tuned that they're cutting in, because we've also had, you know, low end is difficult to translate. Peter, I'm sure can low end and also high high frequency sometimes can be screaming really peaky or not, you know, but it's if the rooms are calibrated well, it's translates surprisingly well. Yeah. Let's geek out for just a, the only moment of this um, presentation. Starting with Tony working towards me, you're not a fair because you're an independent mixer, you work in every room, but what environments are you all monitoring in, starting with Tony? Um, well, the great stages here at Sony. I'm great. fortunate so, enough to be here right. working in the Holden and the Novak, and so it's, uh, I'm, I'm spoiled that way. With more speakers than you know what to do <laughs> yeah, with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jay? Uh, I'm working in a pretty darn small space. I'd say my room is about uh, 8 by 12. It's a 7-1 room, and I'm monitoring at 82. 
I'm also in a smaller room, um, probably about 15 by 20, a 5-1, and we also have, uh, we monitor in a 7-1 room, a little bit bigger, uh, probably about 30 by 40. I have no idea what the size is. It's not gigantic, but... I'm more concerned, I'm interested in the sort of the, the speaker. Do you have an Atmos, mini Atmos thing, a um, 71 stereo, mono? Right. You got Current. an iPad? <laughs> um, actually, well, my setup, I have uh, S3, I have an, a Pro Tools dock. Um, we have a, a, a BSS system for switching in terms of uh, speakers and all this. And currently, right in the middle of upgrading to uh, an Atmos, they're upgrading our rooms. But... Um, they're very well tuned. I'm a Technicolor, and it, they're extremely well uh, tuned. Uh, I was, I, I'm fairly new there, but I was surprised at how well the, everything is translated. Um, I've been able to, you know, EQ dialogue and filter and so forth, and bring it to the stage, and and not be, oh gosh, I went way too deep. I was like, oh no, that sounds like what I mixed in my room. So, very happy with that. Julian, five one. Simple as that. Five one uh, S three with Pro Tools, and 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 go to a larger format on the stage. And and when you're building those sessions, are you creating separate object tracks with, with the goal of those being panned around when you get to the mix, or do you de yeah. make that determination later? Uh, yes and no. Uh, half of it is there's stuff that you definitely know can go into the object, so you assign a food, certain food groups for that, and then. There's stuff that you can only realize when you're in that environment. There's as much planning as you want to do. <clears throat> you know, the ideas seem to come more um, freely when you've got the when other stuff is already happening around you. So it, it's a bit of both. Right. Thanks, uh, Tom. We're, we do a quick Q and A and then and then out. Let's have some questions. It, 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 unfortunately, not every director thinks about sound early on in the process. And is willing to kind of throw you, um, you know, a, a template of what he's thinking, or throw you ideas, and then let you go to town and experiment and do stuff. And the, the best, um, the best uh, environments for me are the ones where the director is completely open to ideas, and, and it, there's no. It's what uh, Tom was talking about in his keynote, where there's no delineation between departments necessarily. If you're friendly with the picture editors and you feel you can suggest stuff freely and the director and the composer it all makes for a much more a better experience so it, it has to come from the top down um i just finished friday the new blade runner film which comes out in october and i had a really seminal experience with Denis villeneuve um, one of the things that makes him extraordinary apropos of what julian's talking about is this this absolute conviction that sound is part of his filmmaking process so he had um, my, my co-designer, Theo Green, on from the first day of production, first day of filming, building in Budapest as they shot the film. Upon arrival in the United States, I started, and he gave me free reign to go on at a sort of an experimental process that had nothing to do with syncing anything to picture, but simply encouraging me to th literally think like a composer. He turned over a, a three and a half hour version of the film with no music in it and said, paint, explore, discover. And my first two, three months were simply like being a madman, just like take acid and turn on all my pedals on my guitar. And How rare is that, hey? I mean, how rare <laughs> well, that you get, not that right. you take acid, I don't know. <laughs> 
I can tell you, it never happens. <laughs> but, uh, you know, to be given the time, because the director has to put the money, you know, put his money where the mouth is, put his mouth where the money is. You know, yeah. it doesn't happen enough. And, and I, I haven't, obviously haven't seen Blade Runner, but I'm sure it Most of the times, out. most of the times you get, I love sound in the meeting. And then when you get to the stage, it's like, well, turn it all down. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you've run into any certain elements uh, in immersive like that you thought would work but didn't. Um, so like, I'm not really sure. Well, there might be times when you think, um, hey, this is going to work and it's going to be really cool. But then you get to the stage. Uh, and all the departments are bringing everything that they have. The music is there and everything. And all of a sudden, you discover that that sound that you put in the left surround speaker uh, is super irritating now and really distracting to the story. So I would think things like that that might be a little bit too blatant wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't I, work out too well. My, I, I've had that experience. When we were doing Iron Man 3, we did an aftermost. But we, we knew we were going to, so we planned and we had mixed i mean it, it was really odd the way we had to do it but but we had very detailed roadmap of how we were going to do it and we all thought it was kind of our first and so we were really excited to have a lot of things moving and panning is um you can only have so many objects really moving what i found what i learned right then and there was how the having that ability to uh, for backgrounds the detail the atmospheres and space and so forth it was like the most impressive thing to me was actually there was a scene where he's in the forest and it's snowing and it was this and I was like, wow, I mean, I'm really there. It was really cool versus having, you know, 60 Iron Men fly around and all this other stuff. There were bits of it that worked well. We had planned on things in his helmet and things like that and that worked very well. And Great sounding movie, by the way. Oh, thank you. Um, and it walked up to it. That was uh, Mark Steckinger as well and a group of other talented people. Um, and... Um, but I, I, you can, you can, you can't have too many things going at once. You can only absorb so much information. Yeah. On that note, distant jets in a video game—they just become noise. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna have to cut it off. My apologies, because this this type of panel you could go for two or three hours, no problem. Um, thank you, Mark Mangini. Thank you, panel. Um,